Amen. Thank you, Bonnie and Linda. That was spectacular as always. And if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Isaiah chapter 36. Um, Alrighty, so last week in chapter 35, we saw how uh, it was kind of the closing section in a way of how God was going to judge uh, evildoing, but he was also going to save his people and create a way for them to return home to Jerusalem, which is where God and humans dwelled. Um, And we kind of recognize that this does happen through the person of Jesus Christ. It's through his salvation that in the end we have a way to God. Um, And no one can take that away from us. It is steady. It is firm. It is entrenched and nothing can move it. Um, Now in Isaiah, though, we're going to be talking. uh, It's actually going to go from prophetic messages to historical events. So we're going to go through all of chapter 36. We're going to read it together. I'll make a few comments um, and then into chapter 37. And for the next three weeks, it's going to be this way. We're going to be having historical events that happen. We're going to read what happened and then we'll just try to get um, certain things from it. So we'll go ahead to our maps because it's kind of, this is when the maps were important. I told you it was going to come a day when you're like, the maps are important. Today is that day and for the next three weeks. All right, so Assyria, as we know, is the commanding group at the time. They are massive. They're taking over everything. They've taken over Babylon. Um, they've taken up through Ararat and all the way down into uh, Judah and Israel. And also they've confronted Egypt. Well, as we're going to see today. Uh, The next slide map shows us exactly how they did it, just out of Nineveh and then going different places. And this is why, when you hear about Jonah, why he does not like Nineveh (laughs) and why he really hates them. Because Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And so it's from that place that basically Assyria is taking over everything. Um, And we go to the next slide in particular, we see how Israel and Judah are divided right now. Um, Israel is actually no more. They've already been conquered by, um, by the Assyrians. And now today we're going to see how the Assyrians are coming against Jerusalem. Um, and they have basically conquered all the rest of Judah at this point. So again, it's going to be a lot of historical, this is what happened. We're going to go through all the verses and we're going to hear um, a little bit more about, okay, this, this, this siege, so to speak. So... We'll read the first three verses, 36, 1 through 3. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rapshakah from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So again, at this point in Isaiah, we have a historical account of what happened with Judah and Assyria. Much of this is also present in 2 Kings for those who have recently or are going to read or have read 2 Kings. The question is, why is it placed here? And it makes sense thematically. Throughout Isaiah's prophetic book, we have seen Isaiah offering two different things, trust in God or trust in the powers of the world. Isaiah has continually argued that in trusting in God, one will find salvation, whereas trusting in the world, it will only lead to disorder and chaos. Now we have a real-life example of all that Isaiah has proclaimed for and against. 
Thus, Isaiah 36 begins with the 14th year of King Hezekiah. Scholars note that the date may actually be wrong and instead should be the 24th year of Hezekiah, since we know the Assyrians did invade then under the leadership of Sennacherib around 704 to 700 BC. As such, the Assyrians conquered the cities of Judah and easily overthrew them. I mean, it was just, it was like a a wiping of a hand. It was so easy for them. Sennacherib then sent the Rapshakeh, who could have possibly been his royal cupbearer, but ultimately all we know for sure is that he was a royal advisor to the Assyrians. Um, and he sent, was sent to Judah from Lachish. That it was from Lachish has historical significance. The Egyptians had attempted to make a stand against the Assyrians 20 miles west of Jerusalem at al Takef. The uh, Egyptians, they were routed, and then they fled southward to Lachish. It was there where the Assyrians put, uh, put a siege, and it seemed likely the siege was almost over. Thus, Sennacherib, seeing victory, likely wanted to deal with Hezekiah on the way back to Assyria, and so he sent his advisor ahead. As such, he stood on the conduit of the upper pool. Interestingly enough, and for those of us who have remembered in Isaiah previously, this is the exact place where Isaiah stood with Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, when attempting to convince him not to trust in Assyria to deal with Israel and the Syrian threat. Now, that same nation which Ahaz did trust, um, and instead of trusting in God, this army of theirs stands to overtake Judah and Jerusalem. So while here, the advisors to Hezekiah, uh, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, come to, the con- to confront the advisor to Sennacherib. It should be of note that Eliakim and Shebna were previously discussed by Isaiah, where Eliakim was proclaimed to rise above Shebna. As it turns out, we see this did in fact happen. Now we're going to come to the next few verses. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust? That you have rebelled against me. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, We trust in our Lord, our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar? Come now. Make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How, can, how then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land. And destroy it. <laughs> I like these historical events. <laughs> They're interesting. Um, so at this time, the Rapshika, he speaks to them. And we notice that he does not even give Hezekiah the proper respect he deserves. He omits, he omits king. He just says, speak to Hezekiah. Um, for the Assyrians, there is no great king except for the king of Assyria. He then makes four arguments against Hezekiah and the Judeans. Interestingly enough, he starts by criticizing the wisdom of Hezekiah's advisors who had encouraged him to trust in Egypt. Indeed, what is Egypt? 
nothing compared to the might of Assyria, something which Isaiah himself had proclaimed. Indeed, Egypt is merely a broken reed, which will cause harm to any who utilize them. And again, we did see that a few chapters in Isaiah when he said, don't do that. Um, So Assyria is agreeing with Isaiah. It's interesting. Next, he criticizes the hope placed in the Lord. Based upon the customs of the day, taking down the different altars across the land and having a centralized location for worship would have been seen as foolish to the rest of the nations. For the pagans, the gods needed these different sacrifices and places of worship to maintain control over the populace. Thus, to have uh, to the pagan such a display of centralization that only in Jerusalem shall you worship uh, in one place would have been a slap in the face to God in question. He then mocks Hezekiah and the Judeans by recognizing even if the Assyrians had given them a gift of horses, there wouldn't be enough men capable of mounting a cavalry. It would not even be a challenge for the Assyrians, even with the extra Judean battalion. I mean, this is back then, the horses were basically like tanks in our day. Um, so they were willing to say, here, have all of what you need. It's not going to work. It is interesting how the Rebshakeh seems to be aware of the potential conflicts within Judah itself, whether it be the destruction of the altars in the high places or that there, were, um, there was at least one prophet proclaiming the coming Assyrian threat, which was Isaiah. It reminds us that spying is not a new thing, and it may show just how aware the Assyrians were of those under its influence of power. Now we'll come to verses 11 through 12. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? So at this point, Hezekiah's advisors make a request that they speak in Aramaic. Similar to how English is the language of trade currently, so it was in the past with Aramaic prior to the influence of the Greek language under Alexander the Great. The purpose of this this request is that those on the wall who were very likely listening in and starting to pile on the wall to hear what was being said and see this massive army and threat, they wanted to listen to the discussion. Um, And the goal is that they wouldn't be able to understand. In response um, of incredible political flourish... (laughs) The Rabshakeh responds with, why would I? Indeed, he speaks back in language of the Judean people, specifically to the people with the intention of showing them the folly of following Hezekiah. If they continue trusting in the promises of Hezekiah, it will lead to a bloody and fateful siege, which will lead to even more sorrow for the people. Now we'll come to further verses. Then the Rapshakah stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water from his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own. A land of grain and wine. A land of bread and vineyards. Beware. 
Lest Hezekiah mislead you, saying that the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Severan? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. <laughs> so the Rabshakeh then continues with two more arguments. Again, speaking on behalf of the great king of Assyria and mocking little Hezekiah, he argues that Hezekiah will not be able to save the people. Indeed, even in encouraging the people to trust in their God, will come to no avail. Instead, he offers the people another choice. Ignore Hezekiah and be granted life. They will, for a time, be able to return to their peaceful existence in their own fields. That is, until the Assyrians do their normal routine, which is to exile the inhabitants of the land to another place. Notice how he describes such an exile as a land like yours, a land like your own. He's attempting to sweeten the deal, so to speak, for them to turn to Hezekiah. And this was, pause um, from my sermon notes, that is actually what the Assyrians did every time. They would conquer a new nation, and then they'd uproot the entire nation and scatter them. That way there wouldn't be any rebellions. Because if you scattered them from their own land, then the thought was people would not have anything to unify them. So they did that over and over again. That's why um, in Israel, when Assyria conquered Israel, they scattered the people. Um, those who weren't able to get to Judah. At this point, the Rabshakeh had likely made two mistakes, though. The first is the, Juda Juda uh, the Judeans knew what it meant to be exiled under Assyrian rule. They had already witnessed the destruction of Israel and such a sorrowful exile there, and many other nations, such as Syria, to boot. Now, however, is another failure in comparing the God of Israel with, uh, and the God of Judah with all the other gods. If the pagans were right in their worldview that the different gods were competing and the larger nations had the more powerful gods, then such a view would be true. Um, the Rabshakeh was right. Assyria was stronger because their gods were stronger. Yet the Judeans, at least under Hezekiah's leadership, knew that the God of Judah was not like any other god. While it may be true the other gods were incapable of delivering their people, that is, because they were not gods at all, but false images, thus the Assyrians' pride is on full display. They believe that they can win against God himself, said another way that God himself cannot save his people. Now we'll come to the end of this chapter, verses 21 and 22. But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rebshakeh. In this brief thought, we learn what happens after all has been said. There was no response from the people who were obedient to Hezekiah. Meanwhile, the advisors returned to Hezekiah to inform him of the word spoken against Hezekiah, the people, and God himself. The advisors' appearance likely gave away to Hezekiah what had transpired. Now we're going to jump into chapter 37 to see Hezekiah's response. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. 
They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So in response, Hezekiah, he himself tears his clothes in mourning, um, but does something Ahaz does not do, and that is that he seeks the Lord. He sends his advisors to Isaiah, who had been known uh, to prophesy concerning the events which were taking place and speaking on behalf of God Almighty, the living God. They then make the request. They present the situation to Isaiah clearly. The Assyrians are mocking the people of God and God himself. They are disgraced by the words of the Assyrians. The people are without strength and without much hope to overcome the incredible threat. As such, they turn to Isaiah to offer a prayer for those who remain in Judah that God would deliver. Um, and now we're going to see and come to the close for today. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Isaiah has a simple response. Isaiah does not necessarily pray for salvation, or at least it is not recorded. Instead, God already seems to know and already has a word prepared for Hezekiah. Hezekiah does not need to fear the words of the advisors, interestingly enough, now called young men of the king of Assyria. Why does Hezekiah not need to fear? Because God is going to act. He will send the advisors back to Assyria because there will be a rumor of uprising closer to Assyria. This will lead to the advisor who has so brashly spoken to fall by the sword and for the army of the Assyrians to no longer threaten the people of God. Um, and that ends this section. Now next week, just so everyone's aware, we're going to read again something else that happens with Assyria and Israel, Judah during this time. Um, but that ends for right now. So the main point of these verses are to show the historical event of the Assyrians coming against the Judeans. Indeed, Assyria was mighty in comparison to the Judeans as they sent a force against Jerusalem. The advisor for Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, speaks with honey mixed with acid. He encourages the people to reject Hezekiah and return to be ruled under the Assyrians. He does this by mocking Hezekiah, saying the Lord has decreed his conquest, saying Hezekiah cannot save, and to not be misled by Hezekiah who will tell them that God will save. In the end, a fearful and mourning Hezekiah asks Isaiah to intercede to God, and God gives a word declaring the victory already won. Alrighty, um, so it's been a while that I've actually had two application points, but today we've got two. Uh, I thought it would be appropriate to say a little something about the difference between prescriptive biblical texts and descriptive texts. While some may be wondering what this is about, let me explain. Oftentimes, I've encountered, and maybe you have encountered, uh, individuals who try to justify their actions based upon something that happened in the Bible. They will say, well, they did this, therefore I can do it since it's in the Bible. Now, the problem with this is that all because someone does something and it happens to be in the Bible, it does not mean that they, what they did was warranted or good. Instead, what we want to understand is that the Bible has different genres. 
Sometimes the scriptures simply give us an account of something that happened before, such as this case in today's text. It is relaying an event that happened in the past between Judah and Assyria. In this way, it is describing the events that took place. It is a descriptive text. Now, on the other side are prescriptive texts. A good example of prescriptive text is when Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. These statements are prescriptive in that we should follow the teaching which is being passed down to us. And now much of the law, the prophets, the New Testament writings are of this sort. They're prescriptive. They're teaching us something. Teaching us how we should live as we follow the living God. Now all of this does not mean that there is no purpose to the descriptive texts. Oftentimes the Bible gives us descriptions of past events for the purpose of our own edification. We learn what they did wrong, <laughs> and we've, we've seen this in Genesis, right? <laughs> what they've done wrong, and seek not to act in those ways. And we learn what they did was right sometimes, and we seek to emulate the good, like David when he always trusted in the Lord before every battle or before the majority of his decisions. However, he also made a bad mistake with Bathsheba, um, and we need to take that into account. Now, it is in, in knowing all the scriptures, though, that helps us to determine what we are to learn from the descriptive texts. In this way, the scriptures naturally teach us about it themselves by considering the actions of all those we read about, not by some arbitrary standard, but by the standard of God himself. So when someone tells you someone did something in the Bible, therefore it is justified for them to do, remember that's not necessarily the case. Remember, the Bible has descriptions of events which we can learn from and understand considering the prescriptive text given. I'm going to take one pause real quick, Bets. And um, the reason why I'm bringing this up too is because, again, we, we just did a descriptive text, right? Now, I'd be wrong if, let's say, someone in our congregation came forward and said, God wants me to destroy this church. Um, and God, the Lord, told me to do so with my tank. Because it happened with Assyria and Judah, so therefore I can do it. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? People might do that. And right now there's this actually this show on TV. I forget what, The Handmaid's Tale. Has anyone heard of it? I don't watch it, but I know enough about it to know I don't want to watch it. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale. And basically it's, it's this kind of futuristic show where people take this, this verse about in Genesis where Abraham is given Hagar. Um, and they say the people then rise up and start doing that same thing with women in society and basically say, okay, we're going to take women and we're going to use them only for these means of creating, procreating. And they start adding these concubines, so to speak, into society. That's an example of someone taking a description of something that happened <laughs> and then saying, I'm going to go do that thing. You can't do that. You have to look at what's prescribed versus what is described. Um, so again, and the same with David. You know, people will say, oh, well, David, he, he had adulterous affair with Bathsheba. I can have an adulterous affair too. No, <laughs> that's not how that works. It's describing an event that took place. Um, and the same with, again, today's text. We see a description of things that happened. The question is, what are we supposed to learn from the description? What do we learn about this story um, is the question. So that said, it leads to the second point. In today's text, we see an event which took place in the past, a potentially horrendous encounter. Assyria has officially set its eyes on Judah. It has conquered the majority of the region, and Jerusalem is looking at the wrong end of a terrible siege. Sieges, 
in ancient times, as well as in modern, were and are horrific. If the enemy barrages against the walls weren't enough to cause fear, then the jam-packed city streets, starvation, and disease should be terrifying enough for anyone. As the onslaught continues, there becomes an increased recognition that death is imminent. Whether in surrender or in the invaders breach the wall, there will be death. This is what the people were facing. This is what the leadership was facing. Do they simply give in? Do they take the Assyrians at their word and potentially save lives? Do they hold down? What are they to do? Under the circumstances, the response by Hezekiah makes perfect sense. They are mocked, God is mocked, and there seems little hope before such an incredible threat. When it comes to our own times, we can often feel as though we are under siege. The way the culture has shifted, both inside and outside the church, causes many to believe the enemy is stronger than our defenses. The biblical doctrines which we hold dear, that God exists, that he created humanity as male and female to bear his image, that we are guilty because of our sins, that we attain salvation by grace through faith in Christ, that this causes a transformation of regenerate life, seeking the will of God, and that through this very faith we will attain eternal life, all of these things are being discarded by different ideologies around us, not only outside the church, but many congregations as well are, are rejecting these. Indeed, the world is becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian faith because it is particular by definition. What does that mean? It means that the Christian faith proclaims Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that there is no other way than what he has given through his life, death, and resurrection. This will not do in a world of pluralism in which all beliefs are equally true and to say otherwise is to be oppressive. Thus, they stack the cards against us. If we proclaim the truth as we know it, we are branded as haters, discriminators, oppressors, arrogant, mean-spirited, and bigots. If we proclaim biblical truths and biblical standards, we are declared to be public enemies. This is actually, I, I read, a, I think, an FBI report where that was the case. We see this occurring in Canada right now, as at least two churches have been forced to close down, and at least two pastors have been arrested for holding services. Never mind the fact that the pluralists are oppressing others for not holding their particular view. Never mind that to be logically consistent, each worldview and each faith, by definition, will contain contradictions with each other, which means they cannot both be equally true. Never mind these obvious failures of reason, we'll ignore the criticisms for now. Because in the end, it doesn't change the fact that though we have our own weapons of reason and truth to stand against the obvious lack of logic which we encounter, we still find ourselves in increasingly hostile environments. The question we must ask in this time is, what are we to do? How do we stand during a time of this spiritual siege? We're not barricading our churches physically, yet. But we can certainly sense we are engaged in warfare spiritually and intellectually. And on the other side is a very powerful human and spiritual force. How can we stand against those who have greater power in this world than we do? I believe that the answer is, is in Isaiah's response. For though we may tear our clothes and put on ashes and sackcloth and mourn what is happening in our society and our congregations... We can also withstand the onslaught by remembering that there is only one God 
and he is greater than all the earthen kingdoms and powers. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our own power. It is in him. So it was with Isaiah. Isaiah was sure that God would do all that he set out to do. We can have this assurance as well. We may not have a specific prophetic statement about the way God will take away the evil threat, but we do have the knowledge that God is capable of bringing good out of evil and that he has conquered evil, conquered death through his son, Jesus Christ. We can be sure, just as Isaiah could be sure, because we know what he has already accomplished. As such, though this world seems to be falling apart, and though we may have fearful moments because of what we encounter and what we have seen, let us not lose hope. Instead, let us remember that the onslaught is just for a while. If we should hold fast to the God of all, then we know our protection will be secure. Even if we should suffer persecutions, either spiritual or physical, we believe and we know that God will one day rise up against all the darkness once and for all, just as he promised to rise up against the Assyrians. How do we survive this onslaught? By placing and seeking God as our shelter. How do we overcome? By remembering God is our strength. Now, I think that this leads to the gospel, and I think that everyone can kind of see in what ways this text does lead to the gospel. Um, and in regards to the fact that we are made in God's image, that we, each of us, have dignity and sanctity and worth to life. I mean, th- there's such a beautiful truth to this. And it reminds us, as we talked with the kids, like God has created such a vast universe, a wonderful universe. Where, I mean, we talk about the stars a lot. We talk about, because we can see them, right? And we think, oh man, how great is the universe? How big is it is? And yet God's bigger. But we never talk about the smaller part either, the atoms <laughs> that connect everything together and just how detailed and specific and designed God made this world to be. That without this design, everything would just simply collapse into non-existence. And yet he holds it all together. And greatest of all things isn't the atoms and it isn't the stars, the smallest to the greatest. It is the fact that he created you and I to bear his image. That's the greatest thing that he created. And that's wonderful. And that's wonderful for all humanity because it's not just us. It's also everyone we encounter, no matter who it may be. If they're human, they're made in the image of God. But the problem is, is what we encounter in today's text. There's sin in the world. There are those who think that in their power they should use it to oppress others. There are those who believe that they have a a right to hurt, to destroy, to do whatever they see under the sun. And they even have, they believe that they have a right to say, trust me, don't trust God. Trust what I'm saying. Trust in my power. Don't trust those who are in leadership, who are trying to show you the light of Christ. Don't trust in Christ. Trust in the world. Trust in the powers of the world. And it's incredibly political what you see today. The Rapshika. Incredibly political. Their power is stronger than Hezekiah's word. Their power is stronger than God himself. Do we not see the same thing with no matter what political ideology we see today? The same exact thing. Humans will try any means whatsoever in order to say we are the powerful ones, God is not. And the more we trust in those political ideologies, the less we're going to see the truth of that God is the one who needs to be followed above all else, above all other allegiances. 
And it leads to further pain and chaos. That's why, for example, in our society, you're never going to find a, a cohesion there because they're two different ideologies. And that leads to tension, and that leads to threat, and that leads to destruction. Not to mention just the simple everyday sins of lying, cheating, and stealing. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that we see the, the more heinous ones in murder. In humanity, there's something wrong with us. <laughs> we see it every day. But, by God's grace, we can be saved. Just as we see in today's text, God will protect his people. God will be there for them. God will be their strength, their stronghold. And he has shown us that he can be through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's in Jesus Christ that we find God saying to the world, I'm stronger and you will never overcome me. Because no matter what, prior to Christ, we did have this problem of death. Now we don't. Now we have life. Now the threat is eradicated because God did something. And just as he promised to do with Jerusalem, just as he promised to do for the people, he has done so with all of us should we place our faith in Christ and what he has accomplished. And in this way, we can begin to see things more clearly. And in this way, we can have regeneration of heart. And as Paul says, we can have all of this tension gone between all these different people because what unifies us is not going to be this ideology or that, but God. Because he is above all of them. And that's why we have to be willing to serve first God above all else. And we can through Jesus. Now this doesn't mean that we can't you know, have political views or anything like that. We have to because we are a part of this world. But it reminds us that God is greater than the political leaders. <laughs> He's greater than all of those who we hold in high esteem. And he has given us himself. Why would we trust them above him? It's like trusting center carib above God himself. We don't need to do that. We can stand on something greater. And if we do, if we do stand on something greater, then it leads to eternal life forever. If we decide to follow after God, if we are in our city and we're being bombarded, if we continue to trust in God, in the end salvation does come, even if we should die in that city. But if we choose to walk outside and we choose to trust in the world that says, I can give you life, what we find instead is death. Don't let the world deceive you. The world is continually telling you, trust me. Don't trust it. It only leads to death. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this descriptive text. Because it reminds us, Lord, that you are a God of history. You are a God who acts in the world. And that not only do we hear of things being done, not only do the prophets proclaim of the events, but you know what? You show us that the events took place and you remind us that you are capable of bringing salvation even in times of utter devastation. And so, Lord, as we continue through this prophet Isaiah and as we continue to see these descriptive texts, let us continue to learn that you are that God. You are the truly living God. And you have promised so much and you have accomplished so much. Let us not take our hope off of you. Lord, you are truly worthy of all of who we are. 
worthy of being followed to the ends of the world. Let us continue to follow you. Give us the strength, Lord. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our